And you're listening to Unusual Sources here on 93.3 CFMU-FM, broadcasting to Hamilton at 93.3 on the FM dial and the rest of the world at cfmu.ca, which is our new website, which has an online streaming service available from anywhere in the world. Today, we're going to be looking at Jeremy Corbyn, as I said, his meteoric rise recently, uh, the UK election. We should have with us today... Anne Garrison. She is a writer, uh, a radio news reporter, and a regular contributor to Counterpunch, Black Agenda Report, and other publications. So, uh, Anne, thanks very much for joining us on the program today. Thank you for inviting me. Well, um, I know that you've had a few articles on this subject. And it's in the periodicals. Lots of people like to read, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Global Research, Counterpunch, uh, Black Agenda Report, two articles in the last, uh, I don't know, two weeks or so. Um, it's not hard to understand why. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, well, it's like what I heard on the Taylor Report about a week ago, which is, um, uh-huh. I mean, Phil Taylor was just at an intermission segment, and he said, you know, Jeremy Corbyn has lit up the sky like a comet. And that's what we're looking at. You know, uh, he's exp- he has shone a light on many things. Uh, it's a bright light. It shows good things that are happening. It shows bad things that's been happening for a while. And I know you take on both the negative and positive of what has been happening in Labour uh, and the Labour Party in the UK. We're just coming off a very significant and historic election uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn picked up 30 seats while support for the Conservatives has been collapsing. And uh, under Corbyn, of course, the Labour Party has expanded in this election, and it happened in an environment where media pundits and experts, so-called, uh, including supposedly left-wing writers and, and The Guardian, um, constantly hammered Corbyn's chances, and uh, they said he would bring disaster to the party. Um, uh, but that's not new, uh, is it? I mean, you know, they, they said that he would do poorly in this election, but they were also saying he was going to do poorly before that, in the by-elections, in the, um, the leadership campaign, the second one, and, and the first one. So, I mean, he's been written off at every single stage, uh, right from the beginning. Right. Well, he himself said that he was just entering the election for leadership of the Labour Party in 2015 to broaden the debate. And at that point, 51 MPs or members of European Parliament Labour MPs or Labour members of, Euro- European, of the European Parliament were willing to sign his nomination papers so that he could run. But they did so only in order to look tolerant as though they could broaden the debate. Yeah. And Jeremy Corbyn himself thought he was entering the election uh, for the Labour Party's leadership to broaden the debate. And <laughs> as soon as he began running, Corbyn mania set in and also... There were changes in uh, the party structure uh, such that previously uh, MPs had a more heavily weighted vote in the vote for the party leadership. But in 2015, and I believe this happened after the Labor Party was walloped in the 2015 election, they instituted a one-member, one-vote system. And then as well, a huge numbers of people, especially young people, joined the party, which costs roughly $5 to dues-paying membership organization, uh, swelling the ranks to 550000 
Well, I remember that time. Uh, I remember in 2015 when he was becoming the leader because it was being uh, sort of um, um, uh, joked about or discussed in a bemused manner by people watching the UK. People in the UK were kind of excited. They said, wow, hey, you know, this Jeremy Corbyn, he could, he could become the leader of the Labour Party. He's an actually, uh, he's a viable candidate. And uh, this, is a, this is someone who's been consistently on the left of that party and a social democrat. Um, and uh, <laughs> it's it actually funny because there's a quote from Tony Blair someone dug up on Facebook. And Tony Blair was talking mm-hmm. about how stable his Labour Party was at the time. He said, you know, mm-hmm. uh, he said, you know, things, you know, we have mo- we're moderates, we're a reasonable party. You know, it's not like Jeremy Corbyn's going to become the leader. And he was joking about that. And of course, uh, Jeremy Corbyn did become the leader much later. And uh, he seems to determined to prove everything Blair said to be wrong. And, you know, Labour did poorly in the 2015 election, as you pointed out, and that's because they'd been following a policy of Blairism, of, of neoliberalism, of, of essentially bowing down to corporate capitalism and, and not providing mm-hmm. an alternative. But mm-hmm. when he came in, I mean, as you said, he was just sort of almost um, a novelty candidate, but he actually picked up a lot of support because a lot of people were just fed up. And once he became a, a candidate for Labour, all these people who had not been in the party, many of them because they had left uh, when Blair got in back in the 90s, rejoined the party. And then young people were also um, enthused about what he had to say. That's kind of what I'm curious about for our listeners. I mean, what was he saying differently or as a candidate or as a person, how is he different from Labour's previous leaders of the last 20 years? Well, he's a socialist. I'm not not sure if it's correct to call him a social democrat because I'm not that well versed on the names of political parties, but I believe he calls himself a socialist, and there's a a thin majority in polls in the UK that now says they prefer socialism to capitalism. Yes, it's been noted that there's this phenomenon um, where seemingly these older gentlemen, these grandpa candidates, whether it be Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn, uh, surprisingly pick up a lot of support among youth. And it is because of what they're advocating for, particularly in the case of Corbyn, who's a a much stronger left-wing candidate than Sanders or anyone that's been presented in the Western world uh, in the last five or so years. And um, you pointed out in your articles, he's um, he's a pretty humble man. He's modest. Uh, He doesn't believe in a glitzy lifestyle. He doesn't believe in the sort of things that are designed to promote or appeal to neoliberal globalization. So, you know, having yachts or fancy clothes or traveling a lot, he does not, he's not huge into that. Uh, he's, you know, drives a, he rides a bicycle, he's a vegetarian and so yeah. on. Um, you know, he, he lives a different kind of life because his values are different. He wants to see a better society. And, yeah. you know, a, a lot of people in labor, of course, understood that. And that's why there's, there's been growing enthusiasm. And so you had pointed out that it was possible for Corbyn to rise in the Labour Party because the structure of the Labour Party is not exactly the same as, for example, the Democrat Party uh, in the U.S. Uh, you can you can vote directly for the leader without interference by this process of what uh, super delegates, right? Yeah, it's not super delegates. Um, does everybody there in Canada know what a super delegate is in the Democratic Party? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, okay. Super in the Democratic Party. And this happened after George McGovern lost uh, to Richard Nixon uh, and won only one state, Massachusetts, in, I think it was 1973, but don't hold me to that. Um, uh, they, they instituted, the Democratic Party instituted this superdelegate system, whereby 
uh, elected officials and some party bigwigs um, have more heavily weighted votes, uh, and, and they're free to, in at the Democratic Party nominating con- convention, at the presidential nominating con- convention, they're free to vote for whomever they want, no matter who their constituents voted for in the primary. So it's it's a similar situation to what was just done away with in the Labor Party, where MPs and European uh, MPs had... Uh, what they call them, MEPs, because they're members of European Parliament. Um, They had a more heavily weighted vote in electing the party leadership. Now, another thing that's really different is that the Labor Party is a dues-based membership party. Now, the lowest dues on a sliding scale are three pounds, which is five dollars. But you... You have to have joined the party and given at least the five dollars, three pounds, uh, to have the right to vote. Uh, now, and that means five hundred and fifty thousand of some sixty some million uh, are choosing the Labour Party candidate who will go up against the other largest party, the Conservatives. Now, I couldn't tell you right now how the Conservatives are structured, except to say that they also elect their party leader. Um, this is radically different from anything we have in the U.S. Uh, and leaders uh, who have a lot of influence in the Green Party have been arguing that the, the Green Party should become a dues-based membership party. I can see the, the appeal of that. Um, in the case of Labor and Corbyn, it certainly... It meant that all, I mean, let's face it, Corbyn, he went around saying, you know, why can't our railroads be publicly owned and efficient? Why can't they be good? Why do we have to just keep assaulting the Medicare system, the national health system, something that uh, people in England are so proud of uh, that is always constantly under threat from cutbacks? He says, we need to be, we need to remain proud of the system. We need to defend it. Uh, he has a lot to say about war and the need for Britain to stay out of it. He has all of these policies. He's basically gone off script, and the that has enabled the many young people who signed up for the Labour Party and the union members who rejoined the Labour Party after he got in to have uh, the influence that they should be able to have in supporting their leader. Because, of course, uh, Corbyn has had to contend this whole time with the Blairites, the supporters of Tony Blair's policy, which, you know, as as I said earlier, every time a challenge has come up for Corbyn, whether it's to become the leader the first time, become the leader the second time, win by-elections, or run in this recent election. They've always said that he was going to lose, that he's unwinnable, that uh, if he runs on anything, he won't win it, that they'll lose seats, the, the MPs will lose votes because of Corbyn, all of which was basically the opposite of the truth. But Corbyn had the numbers through the people in the party that could vote for him, and exert influence in the party to try to rebuild the Labour Party as uh, the left-wing party that it is supposed to be on Britain's political stage. It's also reported that a lot of people who had stopped voting voted for Corbyn. That's very significant because we're living in an age of increasing disengagement. And it's 
been commented, you know, even in the mainstream corporate press, there's always a lot of hand-wringing about why are people staying away from elections? Why don't young people get involved? It's because they're not being offered anything, and they, and they know that these elections aren't for them. So when someone says, you know, I'm one of you, and this actually, I have things to offer for you, they will return to the polls. And, and it reminds you that there's a lot of people, especially the Blair supporters, who basically didn't want all these union people and all these young people demanding socialism and public things and so on. So uh, now, now they have to contend with that. Uh, but I, I guess, you know, I've been I've been tiptoeing around a major issue here and that, it, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it's it's Corbyn's view on foreign policy. Uh, this has been a major source of controversy in, you know, in the corporate press. Um, and it's been a major cause for support for Corbyn um, because he has gone off script. Um, you can see it in, in recent Recent examples, uh, look at the, uh, the fire, the Grenfell fire, uh, that terrible tragedy that happened just days ago. Um, Corbyn, he, he's changing the discourse. He, he has a socialist answer. So he says, well, you know, this is an outrageous situation. And now the survivors of that tragedy are homeless. And why can't we house them uh, in empty properties that are being used for real estate speculation? And of course, you know, that idea was unthinkable before Corbyn. No candidate, no one in the entire UK political scene that has, you know, representation as members of parliament, none of them would have said, you know, let's, let's take over some empty properties. He's, he's changing the discourse. Uh, and, and that's on, on, a, on a domestic issue. But on foreign issues, too, with the, the recent terrorist attacks that have occurred in the United Kingdom, he you know, what was supposed to happen, I think, in the political calculus of the conservatives is, well, these attacks happen, and then people are going to rally behind uh, May's law and order agenda. That was what has often happened in the United States or the United Kingdom. But uh, Corbyn went off script there again. And Corbyn said, we need to stop getting involved in this way, interfering in countries. And he wasn't supposed to say that, right? He was just supposed to sort of fall in line and say, oh, this is all terrible, and uh, we, need, uh, you know, we need to go and bomb Libya or something. You know, that, that's the common response. And he said, no, no, this is actually a cycle of violence. A lot of people, they agreed with that. They had to listen. They, you know, and his, you know, his, I think there was a lot of support for that idea. And that was one of the reasons why he rose and grew instead of shrinking during the election, because people are getting tired of this, this script, this broken script uh, on the, the fake war on terror and the fact that it just leads to more terrorism and the problems aren't being solved. So that's a small example of a bigger issue, which is that he's just not a big fan of British imperialism. Uh, and that's what you discuss in the article in Black Agenda Report in particular, uh, that he wants to shrug off the white man's burden. So can you tell us, what did, what did you mean by that? Well, I think the most important thing to understand about Jeremy Corbyn's for, foreign policy is that he favors acting in accordance with international law. And according to the UN Charter, the violation of a nation's sovereignty, uh, that's the greatest crime. It's the, the, the first principle in international law is that, is that you don't violate another nation's sovereignty. Uh, if, if there is such a violation of another nation's sovereignty, then the UN Security Council is supposed to discuss it and organize an appropriate response. Now, this has all been confused by the R2P responsibility to protect argument, which is somehow now included in, in the UN Charter, but doesn't 
I mean, is that that's supposed to mean, you know, that that uh, there can be an intervention to protect the people from its own leader. Um, but still, there's nothing in the UN Charter that makes unilateral action legal. Well, you know, he's sort of tried to live these beliefs because you can find all sorts of uh, photos of Jeremy Corbyn at the Stop to Stop the War Coalition marches. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. b- right back to the Bush days, 2003, 2002, consistently he's been out there with, you know, George Galloway and Tarika Lee and all these people uh, protesting the, what are now widely recognized as disastrous illegal wars that have killed countless people and destabilized the entire Middle East and caused a refugee crisis and uh, all these problems that are now existing in Europe as well. Uh, so there's, there, you know, he was right and he was out there protesting and he was holding a sign and there's even political cartoons that frequently show Jeremy Corbyn as basically as an anti-war protester walking around with a sign. Uh, that's that's how he's characterized in parts of the British uh, media. Uh, yeah, so well, mean, w- with response to international law, people who've criticized Jeremy Corbyn in the British press have said, "Oh, he should remember Rwanda. He should remember Yugoslavia. He should remember Sierra Leone. Uh, all these places where the West was obliged to." protect people in the global global south from their own leaders and these stories the stories that are used as touchstones for unilateral intervention humanitarian intervention unilateral humanitarian intervention in violation of the UN charter are misdolled uh, the story of Rwanda and the story of Yugoslavia are both radically mistold to justify humanitarian intervention you know, I'm glad you brought um, that. So it's just this this has been posing a major challenge for progressives, as you might call it, in the United Kingdom, United States, and in Canada. And, and that is Oh yeah. You know, the, absolutely. The powers that be, and the powers that be, I mean, the, the military complex, the corporate globalization that wants to change governments that are not congruent with its needs. They desire regime change, but they they find it hard to pitch it as such, just going in and saying, well, you know, Gaddafi doesn't play along, so we want to knock over his government and back al-Qaeda-aligned groups. That doesn't play well, uh, you know, an opinion poll. So it's always a humanitarian adventure or, or a rescue mission. And this poses a... You've, sh- you've, you've got one of the leading advocates of that there in Canada, Romeo Dallaire. <laughs> Yeah, well, that again, that's a huge battle, too, and uh, very few people know about all the details. And so it's important you brought that up because people like Jeremy Corbyn face major challenge because people that want to do good, they want to be on the right side of things, they want to be progressive, they want to stop, they want to end suffering and harm and so on. So when uh, the media tells them, oh, well, you know, Assad's gassing kids, so we got to go and we're going to remove his government and make things better again, or Saddam has weapons of mass destruction, but don't worry, we're going we're gonna to go in there and save everybody. Is the, the, the left is invited to play along with this, and they mostly do, to the point where you can hardly even speak of a left because uh, Corbyn's own party, the Labour Party, had been a leading advocate of armed military intervention under a humanitarian guise. And his own party, you know, is full of such people. And so Corbyn is getting pilloried, not just from the conservative press, from the Tories and Colonel Blimps and all of that. And of course, he is getting heavily you know, attacked by them, but his own people are saying, well, you know, I, maybe, maybe Jeremy Corbyn is too weak on, on Trident, uh, you know, because what, there was that whole question of 
nuclear weapons, right? Uh, and, you know, how enthusiastic is Corbyn to use nuclear weapons? Is he ready to push the button and send all the nukes going? Are they going to build more nuclear submarines? And, they, you know, uh, Corbyn doesn't even want, he doesn't think that deba- debate is legitimate in the first place, that Britain needs to be thinking of how fast it can nuke everyone and uh, how many carriers it can have on somebody else's shore and all of that is is not his cup of tea. But the Labour Party introduces that agenda, that militaristic agenda, in a humanitarian guise. And that's one of the major challenges he's going to face going forward, because there will be more calls for action in Syria and other places. And they're going to say, you know, think about the children. What about the children? And uh, you got to do something. We have to do something. And by do something, put boots on the ground, put aircraft in the sky, uh, drop bombs, and, and so on. And that's going to be a major challenge for Corbyn. He has stood pretty firm against a lot of this stuff so far. And he's kept his head about him for the most part. But um, it, it really is an uphill battle, even with his increased legitimacy. And he is operating with increased legitimacy now, right? Because uh, his, his, oh, re- yeah. Yeah, his recent successes. I mean, what can you tell us about that? I think some people have had to backtrack on their statements about his electability. Well, again, he's a believer in international law. And international law is a distant ideal, uh, but it's still an ideal. And... All of his statements about foreign policy have made it seem possible. Um, and I think it's important to note that he's being accused of being a pacifist. Now, I don't see any sign of him being a pacifist. I hear him advocating for compliance with international law, which means if there's a violation of another nation's sovereignty, the Security Council is supposed to discuss it and organize a response. Now, the Security Council is not the most <laughs> democratic body in the world, but it still has a balance. You know, the, the permanent members of the Security Council are a, a balance of East and West uh, and less, less likely to intervene in behalf of a Western agenda or, you know, a Russian or Chinese agenda. Not that either of those countries show any signs of being military expansionist at this point. Well, yeah, the Security Council is divided, and it sort of, in the past, has kept it in line from going one way or the other. What we're looking at here in relation to Corbyn is that Corbyn is a product of a more civilized age. Um, People have called him, where I've been reading, people have been calling him a 1970s social democrat, someone who believes in the welfare state and Keynesianism, in international law in the United Nations. That was a product of an era when the global south had more power, more economic power, military power relatively than it, and it does now in many respects. It was a, a, an era in which there was a socialist counterweight to the United States. And, uh-huh. you know, the United Nations had to operate as the United Nations in the sense that one, one country, one vote, and many people would oppose U.S. or British policy. There'd be debates about issues or different conceptions of human rights that involve social and economic rights. The, the idea, you know, that um, countries have the right to develop and to have their own path going forward and that some big imperial power can't just walk in there um, and bulldoze them. And if they do, that military response, everything has to be organized via the Security Council, via international law. That is the era that Corbyn comes from, and he didn't really waver. He didn't. You see, the difference between him and Blair and the Blairites is when the Soviet Union collapsed and when Bush the first went on the military interventionist ticket there, um, a lot of people just 
went over to that and said, well, you know, the UN is kind of irrelevant or we should only work through it when it agrees with us and we're just going to go and yeah. invade this and invade that and cut back all the public sector stuff here. You know, austerity at home, war abroad. That was Tony Blair's agenda under a somewhat left guise. So they all wavered. They all bowed down to capital. And uh, But Corbyn didn't. And he's probably wearing the same clothes he was 40 years ago uh, right now. And he didn't change his ideas. And it's because his ideas were more solid. They were better than the ideas of his opponents in the party. And now, well, yeah. Um, Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders were both young in far more radical eras. Mm-hmm. They were young in the, in the 60s and early 70s. And that, uh, yeah. J- Jeremy Corbyn is, still has a very radical foreign policy in, insofar as respecting international law is radical. In this world we're living in, <laughs> respecting international law is a very radical position. Uh, Bernie Sanders is not is not Jeremy Corbyn on foreign policy. There's some kind of a bond between the two, and Bernie Sanders went to the U.K. to campaign for Jeremy Corbyn, and Bernie Sanders is the only American politician to have called and congratulated him. But there's a big difference between his foreign policy and that of Jeremy Corbyn. (laughs) He's not appealing to international law. Uh, He got caught up in the Russophobia. Uh, he supported the war in Syria. Um, you know, if there were more of an anti-war community here than we seem to have, maybe, maybe his foreign policy statements would be better. But as it is now, they're they're not even close to Jeremy Corbyn's. Yeah, but yeah. but Bernie Sanders is still the most popular politician in the U.S. according to a number of polls. Well, and. I think it's clear that in, the Democrats were not willing to let a Bernie Sanders get their nomination and become president. And since his appeal was to many of the people who have been left behind by NATO and all the other disastrous trade agreements that, that led capital chase the cheapest labor all over the world, um, he, I mean, he, that, this is an argument that Trump was also making, uh, Bernie Sanders probably could have beaten Trump. I mean, I don't have any doubt. I don't have any doubt about it myself. Well, but yeah, the Democrats yeah. were not going to allow that to happen. And it, uh, yeah, and they didn't let him, him take a leadership role in the party afterwards either. I mean, logically he should have become the Senate majority leader. Instead, they stuck with Chuck Schumer and they gave him a sort of laughable position that had never existed before as the Democratic Party outreach director, yeah. meaning they thought they could use him to bring people into the party, but they weren't going to concede to any of his positions. He gave up throughout the course of that election campaign and afterwards. Bernie Sanders gave up most of his power, and he, and he won't be able to probably make a comeback to, to where he was. But, you know, he was popular and is popular because his ideas have a constituency. And, and it relates to the big problem that, we, that labor in the UK was facing and that the Democrats in the United States facing and similar situations exist here. And that is ordinary people, people who work for a living, people who benefited in the past from unions and minimum wage laws and things like that. That's a huge right. group of people. And they have been abandoned 
by the parties that had come to support globalization. Uh, in the Democrats, you know, there's a lot of articles on this, you know, uh, in, a many, in many different publications. They walked away from the working class. You know, it wasn't so much that Trump won the election, but Hillary lost the election. The Democrats lost the election. They threw away their constituency, and they can easily do it again. And all those people who were enthused by Sanders' program and people that are enthused by Corbyn's program are out there and they can be mobilized. And I think what it shows is that, you know, the, the cracks are starting to show in this, this neoliberal edifice. And what I mean is globalization, the parties that support corporate globalization and all the things that entails, you know, with job offshoring and automation with no protections for workers, uh, all of these, the, the whole dismantlement of the whole post-war welfare state and all of the economic and social progress that have been made since that time. It used to be that they could just, on autopilot, people like Tony Blair and his successors could, could run on, on those positions and perhaps win. And now it's breaking down. And if someone starts speaking the truth, like Corbyn, it mobilizes massive support. So the institutions of neoliberal globalization, like the, the EU, uh, NAFTA, they're running, they're failing, they're having a lot of troubles and a lot of cracks. And it's put, put us in a place where people like Corbyn that appeal on an actual left-wing program seem to be able to garner a lot of electoral support now. Well, I'll give you an example of how extreme this got in the UK. And I just learned this when I started studying how German Corbyn's history had happened. Uh, under Thatcher, they privatized water in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we haven't even quite done that here. No, but that, I mean... Uh, and that's what part of one of his main platform points is <laughs> we have to take back the water. It's a public resource. Um, yeah, yeah. And one other thing about, about politics here is that a majority of millennials prefer socialism to capitalism in the U.S. Yes. I mean, it's coming to the point where if you want to run against these ideas, these socialist ideas, you, you might be unelectable. Uh, you brought up Margaret Thatcher there. You know, Margaret Thatcher said there is no alternative. Well, there is an alternative. Um, and, you know, she also famously said there is no such thing as society or some kind of quote that was interpreted uh, as being as such. But, of course, uh, Jeremy Corbyn is here and he's saying there is a such thing as society and we need to work together to strengthen our public institutions and redistribute wealth in order to improve the standard of living and reduce the vicious inequalities and competitiveness that is so wasteful in this neoliberal era we live in. So um, I think, yeah, there is an alternative. And uh, there is a such thing as society, and we need to move forward on that basis. So thanks for writing those articles, because uh, we in Canada and the United States need this more than anyone. We're in the absolute epicenter of this black hole uh, of globalization and all the, the offshoring and outsourcing and so on. Um, and, you know, uh, Sanders uh, kind of shone a light on some things, and we need to move forward from there. And the Green Party, you've been arguing that it's so hard to make positive change in the Democratic Party. You need to be building those third parties, uh, and if you're doing that, you need to look at labor and how its structures might allow someone like Corbyn to rise uh, and garner. Exactly. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I really want to see, I want to see that happen. I want to see articles and writing on how to build viable third parties in the United States, and how to revitalize uh, social democracy in Canada and the left and socialism. But there'll be lots of writing on that too. Well, the Green Party is debating whether or not to rename itself the Green Socialist Party. Well, that's uh, and we're debating about the dues issues. But there's one more thing I want. I know we have to get off here. There's one more little thing I wanted to say, that is 
that now I'm looking into the Brexit issue, and what I find is it's hard to tell what Jeremy Corbyn's position on that was. Hello? Yeah, it's a weak spot for okay. him. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but one thing I read was that he more or less sat that out, and he has a history as a Eurosceptic. You know, so, you, you know. Right now, I'm. If he had, if he had been able to come out strongly for a Lexit, you know, a left Brexit, you know, that which there was a people talking about in the UK, uh, that that could have even further bolstered him. Uh, there are a lot of people that are upset with uh, the the institutions like the EU that they want to return to the social protections that have been gutted under this, you know, free trade, free yeah. market, free movement of money or whatever. In the EU, a lot of you know a lot of people in the in the UK and the North and the industrial regions very upset, and um, a lot of those Labour people had moved over to UKIP. Um, although Jeremy has been taking a lot of people who had who had abandoned the party because he's gone back to its classical uh, positions. So there needs to be a strong left exit from, from the EU uh, in. Uh, not just in one country, but in, in all of those countries in the e- European Union. Um, and that's a big issue that's been hard for people to address because the right wing has dominated that debate. And instead of letting the right wing dominate the debate, you need to get in there and, and do what the left classically is supposed to do, which is to strengthen institutions controlled by working people's organizations, unions, ordinary people, and not just bow down to the organizations that were created you know, literally by the banks by by capitalists uh, like the EU, which is designed to suppress the post-war welfare state gains. So, you know, you need to take a strong position on that. That could have helped Corbyn if he had, just as um, if his own party hadn't betrayed him at every step of the way, you could be looking at Prime Minister Corbyn right now instead of all these people. Exactly. You know. <laughs> exactly. 80% of his own MPs were reported not to be supporting him. Um, but I'm going to get off here. I know you have another guest, and so I just wanted to say that the next time I write about this, it may be about what I've been able to understand about the Brexit issues. Wow. Okay. Well, that, okay. that's you know another big debate, and uh, there needs to be a more explicitly uh, left position, or uh, there hasn't been enough of that. So I look forward to that. Well, I guess we'll see it in Counterpunch and so on. So I'll keep my eyes open. Thanks so much for joining us on okay. the program. See, Thank you. See you, Anne. Bye-bye. That, of course, was Anne Garrison, and uh, she is a columnist, journalist, author, writer with Counterpunch, Black Agenda Report, Global Research. She's uh, a host of her own program. I think it's on KPFA. You can find her on SoundCloud, uh, just like you can find this program on SoundCloud. We're uh, Unusual Sources on SoundCloud. Uh, we're on SoundClick. We're on Radio for All. We're on the CFMU official website at uh, cfmu.ca.